This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 20% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code LEFT9. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Bill Show, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Majority Report, Moyers & Company, Counterspin, The Media Matters Minute, and The Young Turks. Evidently, there it was a worldwide alert for uh, terrorism uh, since the last show, and they had to close a whole lot of embassies. Did you hear about that? I did hear about that, and you know, the first thing I thought about is, but we had a way to warn all the people, some color-coded thingy? Yeah. Yeah, during and, that time and, in which and we were... Obama got rid of that. Yeah. And now we needed it again. Now, now, save the children. Oh, my God. So, listen, what really was the story? And first of all, let me not deny that there are terrorist threats around the world. Okay? Fine. You there probably, may be one right now. There may be one right now. We're not saying there isn't. But what we've noticed since I, at least what I've noticed since we have lived overseas, is the difference in media coverage between what I, what I see when I go home and what is, you know, rational. Uh, so, well, but, but yeah. hold on a minute. Uh, to, to be fair, in America, the cable news industry, yeah. where we've got several channels trying to fill yeah. airspace, yeah. 24-7, yeah. has been known to overreact. and Overreact? Sometimes, sometimes like outright 12-year-old kid on Ritalin, for God's sake. <laughs> Jesus. Now, I, I want to play for you two things. that I, I, I studied media, by the way, which, by the way, with that degree, it qualifies me to watch television. <laughs> Thank you very much. But I have a media degree. And one of the things we were talking about is how uh, media changed people's habits and how the use of propaganda gets the public to react the way you want. I'm going to play you, first of all, the reporting of the, uh, the the embassy closures as reported by a European news organization. Okay, This is what went on in Europe. And I want you to listen to this. And uh, here you go. This is, this is what I recorded. This is a European news organization about the closure of the embassies. The United States is to keep some of its embassies in North Africa and the Middle East closed until the end of the week as a precaution due to a possible al-Qaeda terror threat. Yesterday, 21 diplomatic posts were shut in response to intelligence or so-called intercepts gathered from the phones and emails of terrorist suspects. Yes. Yes, that was that was what we call news and information. Look, we're closing some embassies till the end of the week. There has been some information, but I mean, it's very kind of like news. This news, you know, this is something that we're going to have to deal with. This is uh, something that's happening in the world. Right, today. we shouldn't panic. Okay, panic would be you know bad. I love the fact that she sounds Notice like she. That, that, that there wasn't any overblown uh, use of language. Well, yeah. setting a tone to try to inflame fear. It's all it's what we call rhetoric. Okay. And uh it was so it was really almost like she's announcing a golf tournament. You know, I mean it's, it was that much. Oh, it so, wasn't quite that poor. But no, it was it was she's very, actually quite a good very civilized. Don't worry, it will be fine. That's all right. Don't think very comforting. I like that. 
I'm, I'm cautious, but I like that. So now, you like that in a news yeah, presenter? Now, ABC News. I'm not even talking Fox. ABC News, the same day, came out with this. Another reminder of this uncertain world. There is a worldwide alert that Al-Qaeda is looking for a moment to strike. Today, the State Department issuing an alert warning Americans overseas that a plot is underway. But are there specific targets and what should Americans do? ABC's chief global affairs correspondent Martha Raddatz tracking all the latest developments for us tonight. Martha. Diane, today's global travel alert comes as the State Department is preparing to shut down more than 20 embassies and consulates, the most to be closed since 9-11. A terrible reminder for Americans that we are still major targets. Oh my God! 9-11, Bill! 9-11! We're still a target! Oh my God! Think of the children! Well, you know something? I listened to those two together. And you know something? If I lived in that country, I'd be crazy. It's like the media have you in a Skinner box. And every time they want you to panic, they mention 9-11. We're still the target. Can, can yeah, you analyze the, the, those the, the, words that you use? This has been happening for so oh, long. God. Don't you think that most Americans get it? No, I don't. This is this is the ABC. This is this is ABC mainline American television. Now they are reporting this as using every form of persuasion or rhetoric to compare closing a few closing some embassies in the Middle East for a week to nine eleven. And what is the purpose? What is the purpose? And would you believe it? Would you believe? This is Laura Poitras. Laura Poitras is an American filmmaker. She won a MacArthur Genius Award last year. Ms. Poitras makes documentaries. Her first one was about Columbus, Ohio, about gentrification in Columbus, Ohio. More recently, she's been working on a trilogy about the war on terror, starting with a documentary about life in Iraq under U.S. control during the U.S. war in Iraq. Uh, the second part tells the story of two men from Yemen, including one who was a driver for Osama bin Laden. Uh, Ms. Poitras is still working on the third installment in that trilogy, which is about U.S. surveillance of phone calls and emails and so on uh, since 9-11. She posted a bit of that one last year on the New York Times website. You build social networks for everybody. Uh, that then turns into the graph, and then you index all that data to that graph, which means you can pull out a community that that gives the, you an outline of the life of everybody in the community. And if you carry it over time from 2001 up, you have that 10 years worth of their life that you could lay out in a timeline that involves anybody in the country, even senators and House of Representatives, all of them. The dangers here are that we fall into something like a totalitarian state like East Germany. Working with top-level sources like that former NSA employee. 
uncovering government secrets, shooting and producing her films all over the world. Laura Poitras, the documentarian, she has been busy. But as she has been doing a lot of traveling for her work, for her films, she has found that she gets stopped a lot at the airport. And not anything like what you might get stopped at for the airport, uh, stopped, stopped at the airport for. She's been stopped dozens and dozens of times at the airport for interrogations that sometimes last for hours. Ms. Poitras started taking extraordinary precautions with her data, using encrypted email, working on computers that were not connected to the internet, stashing her notes in safe deposit boxes. And she kept on, though, getting stopped at the airport. Starting in 2006, she was detained and questioned like that more than 40 times. In April of last year, Salon.com wrote about what had been happening to Laura Poitras as she tried to travel. And then, finally, finally, after that public attention and that article from Salon.com, the airport interrogations of Laura Poitras stopped. She found that, okay, she now can get on a plane again, more or less like the rest of us. The author of that article in Salon about Laura Poitras was the lawyer, blogger, and civil liberties journalist, Glenn Greenwald who lately has teamed up with the subject of that article that he wrote. He has teamed up with Laura Poitras, alongside Barton Gelman's reporting for the Washington Post. It has been Glenn and Laura's series of exposés that have detailed much that we did not know before about the reach of America's intelligence agencies into the lives of ordinary, non-terrorist, non-suspicious people living in this country. The way U.S. intelligence can and does track our phone calls, our emails, virtually all of it, all the time. Laura Poitras and Glenn Greenwald have done this reporting, of course, based on classified documents given to them by a former contract worker for the NSA. And he, of course, is the one who now has temporary asylum in Russia. But it is Laura Poitras and Glenn Greenwald who know what their source has to tell, and it is they who have been telling his story, making news out of the documents that he has given to them week after week now since June. And yeah, their source may be in Russia now, but they're not. Glenn Greenwald lives in Brazil uh, with his partner, who is Brazilian. Laura Poitras now has been living in Germany because she says she needs a place to work on her documentary about U.S. surveillance without worrying that the U.S. government will try to seize her material. Well, early yesterday morning, Glenn Greenwald uh, got a call when he was at home in Brazil. The call informed him that his partner had been, his personal life partner, his boyfriend, had been detained by authorities in the UK at Heathrow Airport. His partner is named David Miranda. He's Brazilian. He was on his way home from visiting Laura Poitras in Berlin. British authorities held him at the airport for nine hours, questioning him about the reporting that Glenn Greenwald and Laura Poitras had been doing about surveillance. They seized Mr. Miranda's electronics. They took his cell phones. They took his thumb drives. They took his video game players. They took a laptop. And then, with the Guardian newspaper lawyers at the airport, they finally let him go after nine hours of detention. The British law that allows that kind of detention does not require law enforcement to have a reasonable suspicion about the person they are detaining. But this seems important. The law only exists explicitly for the purpose of determining whether that person is or has been involved in the commission, preparation, or instigation of acts of terrorism. That's what that law is for. That is the grounds on which they stopped him. That was the legal authority under which they held Glenn Greenwald's partner in detention for nine hours. Acts of terrorism. Journalism is not terrorism. 
Journalism can be enraging to people in power. Journalism can sometimes even be frightening to people in power. But journalism is not terrorism. Reporting on what governments do, even when those governments prefer to keep those actions secret, is not terrorism. Terrorism is a real and discreet thing in the world. It is not an all-encompassing term that you apply to everything the government doesn't want you to do. The White House today said it had been given a heads-up in advance that the detention of David Miranda was likely to happen. Britain gave the U.S. a heads-up before it happened. The White House went out of their way today to say that it was Britain's decision to detain Glenn Greenwald's partner. It was not something the U.S. asked Britain to do, and okay, fine, but the White House did know about it in advance, and it still happened. We have that kind of special relationship with Britain, where if our government were outraged that this detention was going to happen, we could have objected, right? We could have at least asked our dear friends, the British government, to not do this. Maybe in the interests of not intimidating the activities of the free press, if not for any other reason. Did our government make any objections when they got advance notice from Britain that this detention was going to happen? Did our government protest? And if not, why not? I tend to think that we did not protest since it went ahead. I know the U.S. government is not happy about Laura Poitras and Glenn Greenwald and their reporting about U.S. surveillance. The president said that the disclosures from their source have led to a disorderly debate about these issues. And even though we ought to have a debate about these issues, it ought to be more orderly. Fine. But if the United States wants to convince the world that the Glenn Greenwalds and Laura Poitras of the world are correct when they say the U.S. government is going too far. If they want to underline and put flashing red lights on that reporting that says that counterterrorism is being used to justify all sorts of things that are not justified by the actual threat of terrorism and that in fact have just greenlit gross government overreach and intrusion and intimidation of legitimate activity, including journalism then putting journalists and their families through marathon interrogations and seizing all their electronics is a really great way to start convincing the world that all that reporting is accurate. Letting our closest allies do it while we stand silent is the same thing as us doing it. Journalism is not terrorism. Pretending otherwise is outrageous and ridiculous and a dangerous affront to who we are as a country and as a democracy. It's an absolute outrage. Squarespace.com is a platform used to build professional-looking websites so easily that anyone can do it. They boast powerful features while maintaining a keen eye for design, which keeps everything simple and usable. When you use Squarespace, you get all that, plus 24-hour support. Now, a company providing all those features really isn't the most surprising thing in the world, but what is surprising is that their plans start at only $8 a month. Now, this is true. I'm still stuck with my old website for the time being, and I pay $6 a month just for the privilege of having it hosted on the internet. Now, of course, my company didn't help me build the site, nor will they help me fix it if anything goes wrong. And I'm not complaining that 6 bucks to host my site is too expensive, but it sure puts things in perspective when you see how much more you get from Squarespace for just 2 bucks more. Plus, when you sign up using my special offer code LEFT9, that's L-E-F-T and the number 9, for September only, you get 20% off your purchase. So if you sign up for a full year, that's 20% off the entire year. So sign up with the offer code LEFT9 before the end of the month to let them know you're supporting this show and to get 20% off when you create your own space at squarespace.com. Are you this fleeting? Old age is just around the bend. I can't. 
There's not much else to say about the Bradley Manning trial at this point, um, but for the fact that it was horribly undercovered by the media, though the media time and time again, whether it was the print journalists or whether it was television, cited the material that he leaked time and time again in news stories. And this is relevant to the extent that when you look upon Bradley Manning and ha ask the question as to whether or not he was a whistleblower, was the information that he was disseminating of value to the American public, of import to the American public, was it important for the American public to know the truth about these things? The fact that media organization after media organization after media organization presented this material in the context of news stories. And certainly they don't have a bias towards erring on the side of stuff that is um, maybe marginally inform informative when you're talking about hard news. The fact that it was cited, the materials that he leaked was cited time and time again in analysis of what is happening in Iraq, in analysis of what is happening in Afghanistan, in analysis into what United States foreign policy is. Over and over and over again, on many occasions I sat on programs on MSNBC where the host or guest would say this information is completely irrelevant and then the following week the host would be reading from information that came from those leaks and without even an awareness that that's where it came from. Citing the Guardian, citing uh, the, without an awareness that, that the Guardian or the Times or the Post or Der Spiegel or whatever it was had received this information via WikiLeaks from Bradley Manning's uh, leaks. And so that speaks to his role, if not legally, because in the context of, of him being military personnel and the charges brought against him, but at least morally a whistleblower. And he certainly exposed crimes and lies being perpetrated by the U.S. government upon its own people or crimes, I should say, in the context of uh, waging war, lies in the context of assessing what was happening in Iraq and Afghanistan. And, frankly, I don't even know if the media did enough with that information. I would love to hear the justification of why it's in uh, the United States tax dollars are going to lobby to make sure that the uh, Haitian minimum wage is not raised. It's certainly relevant that the U.S. government, the Obama administration, was actively lobbying and pressuring f European governments who were attempting to further torture trials against former U.S. officials, lobbying them hard, whether it was in Spain or in Germany, 
That seems quite relevant and somewhat ironic in the sense that the Obama administration came in with a complete turn-the-page mentality. There's no value in us looking back upon those who committed torture, those who developed a policy of torture, those who spied on this country illegally, without warrant, unequivocally illegally, with no debate illegally. The Obama administration had zero interest in pursuing any of that. Not just zero interest in pursuing any of it, was actively stopping and lobbying and threatening European governments that were beginning to pursue such investigations. And we know that from Bradley Manning's leaks. And in this case, he's the one who's going to go to jail. He's the one who's going to stay in prison for at least eight years, potentially 30. It's, it's an outrage. It's an outrage. And there is really just shockingly little justification for this. Those of you who are hoping uh, for President Obama to uh, to in any way commute his sentence, uh, good luck. I would not hold your breath. Um, that, that's not going to happen. Maybe um, uh, tomorrow we'll take a little time to, to review some of the things that um, Bradley Manning uh, released. But, you know, it was assessments of what was going on in Iraq, assessments of what was going on in Afghanistan, um, civilian casualty numbers, which had been classified. Supposedly there was no count, we were told by uh, the military. Apparently they did have a count. They just didn't want anybody to know what it was. I think it's of great uh, value to the American public to know just how many innocent civilians you've killed with your tax dollars. Certainly people can disagree. I think they're uh, completely wrong. He also uh, revealed how uh, government, you know, now I think maybe more is known about drones, but he was one of the first people that put any of that information on the map. He showed how places like the Yemeni government uh, denied their approval of strikes we were conducting in, in, in uh, Yemen publicly, even as they secretly supported it. A lot of things he exposed were really important. I don't think that there's like a single area from national security point of view that he didn't shed light on yeah not to mention all the commercial what i mean haiti and also like going to bat for the pharmaceutical industry and mining interests and i mean just huge amount of information and and to this day 
the U.S. government has not proven one detrimental impact to our national security because of those leaks. Not one instance. Nothing. 35 years in prison. 35 years in prison after basically going through what is tantamount to torture uh, in pretrial hearings. I mean, so make no mistake about it. There's no, there's no question about this is being, uh, about this being justice. This is, is pure, unadulterated intimidation. We're seeing it in the case of Bradley Manning. We're seeing it in the case of, of digital activists. We're seeing it in the case of journalists. And it's only those uh, journalists whose um, bread is buttered very much by those that many think that journalism is supposed to be skeptical of uh, who are speaking out in defense of what the national security state is doing there's a man killed on broadview in maine they've got a new drug but we still feel the pain but a dog saved a black kid from an oncoming train so the story breaks even still seem to lose Y'all fall asleep with the time broke out blues. Time again to talk with Marty Kaplan. Loyal members of Mortars and Company know him as one of the keenest and most sensible observers of politics, the press, and culture. He runs the Norman Lear Center at the University of Southern California, an independent promontory from which he lets his mind range wherever his insatiable curiosity takes him. Most recently, Brazil. For several weeks, the largest country in Latin America has been shaken by a massive citizen uprising, protesting political corruption, economic injustice, poor health care, inadequate schools, lousy mass transit, a crumbling infrastructure, and get this, billions blown on sports. That's right, vast numbers of citizens in this soccer-crazy nation are outraged that their government is spending billions of dollars to host the 2014 World Cup and the 2016 Summer Olympics. This, in the land of Pele. They're even up in arms over the $74 million deal signed by the young soccer star Neymar da Silva. Crowds have been shouting, Brazil, wake up! A teacher is worth more than Neymar. Being no one's fool, Neymar has sided with the protesters and written on Facebook that their mobilization inspires him on the playing field. Surveying this tumult, Marty Kaplan recently expressed wonder at this people's uprising and challenged us, his fellow Americans, let's be Brazil. That's when I called him and asked him to join me on the show. By the way, his work has just won two awards from the Los Angeles Press Club, including Best Columnist. Marty Kaplan, welcome. Thanks very much. And congratulations on those awards. Thank you. You recently confessed to outrage envy. What's that about? It's my feeling that what happened in Brazil, which is so encouraging about citizens taking their destiny in their own hands, is not happening here. We have uh, unemployment and hunger and crumbling infrastructure and a uh, tax system out of whack and a corrupt uh, political system. Why are we not also taking to the streets is the question. And I want us to. You wrote, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. So are we not paying attention? 
we are paying attention to the wrong things. We are paying attention to infotainment, which is being spoon-fed to us. And sadly, frankly, we are enabling because we love the stuff. The infotainment narrative of life in America, you call? Yes. The tragedy of journalism now is that it is demand-driven, and when you ask people what they want, we're like one of those rats that have a lever to push, and cocaine comes out, and once that happens one time, they'll stay there till they die, until more of the drug appears. We can't help loving lurid stories and suspense and uh, the kind of sex and violence which the news is now made up of. But you go on beyond the infotainment story. You say our spirits have been sickened by the toxins baked into our political system. Powerful sentence. Our spirits have been sickened by the toxins baked into our political system. The control of our democracy by money is shocking and deserves the same kind of response to corruption that it got in Brazil. And instead, we have become used to it. We don't see a way around it. There are voices, there are people like Larry Lessig that are trying to change the campaign finance system, the way media plays into that. But they are voices in the wilderness. And we, the public, have wised up and decided either not to pay attention at all or the media have decided not to force us to pay attention. And if we do pay attention, you can't live with the knowledge that our democracy is now so corrupt that it is unchangeable. So if it is true, as you say, that our tax code is the least progressive in the industrial world, that we witnessed the most massive transfer of wealth in history, which is destroying our middle class, that tuition is increasingly unaffordable and retirement increasingly unavailable, that the banks that stole trillions of dollars of Americans' worth have not only gone unpunished, they're still at it. Why are we not at the barricades? I suspect among your viewers there were people who are outraged and want to be at the barricades. The problem is we have been taught to be helpless and jaded rather than to feel that we are empowered and can make a difference. Taught by whom? By those of us who report the news of bad things happening? Well, the stuff that is being reported on the news tends not to be the kind of stuff that we need to know about in order to be outraged. Climate change is one of the great tests of journalism. There was the New York Times headline about uh, the first time that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere reached 400 uh, parts per million, which the Times said that carbon dioxide had reached a level not seen in millions of years. Yeah. My jaw fell. You would think that that would cause a worldwide stir. And instead, it was a one-day story. On to the next thing. As you know, President Obama recently made a major speech in which he announced a new plan to tackle climate change. All three cable networks turned to the president's speech, but then they cut away from it well before it was intended to end. Uh, Fox News cut away, saying their remarks could be streamed online, and then they turned to a guest critical of the president. The planet is warming, and human activity is contributing to it. But that is not the full story. <laughs> we're going to stream the remainder of the president's remarks live on foxnews.com, and in the meantime, we'll be, we're joined now with some reaction. Uh, Chris Horner is the senior fellow at the Center for Energy and Environment at the Competitive uh, Enterprise Institute and the author of the book Red Hot Lies. 
Fox's host, Megyn Kelly, wondered aloud about whether the country even needed to tackle the problem. And CNN's Wolf Blitzer cut in soon after. All right, so the president uh, making uh, a major, major address on climate change. I want to bring in Jim Acosta. And the uh, president's got some uh, important news he's about to release. And then Wolf continued to talk well, over the president's remarks. What do you make of that? The meta message is more interesting to journalism than the message itself. People, the meta message? The meta message is, here's grist for combat between different factions. How is it going to play out? Rather than the message, which is, here's what's happening to our climate. Here's what we have to do to prevent it. That stuff risks being boring, but combat is never boring. What they don't know how to do is to talk about, well, what are our options here, America? Uh, how do we mitigate the effects of climate change? Instead, they're refighting all these old battles, and that kind of combat is what they can do. The Sunday talk shows did something else, which is to completely ignore it. I mean, they probably had John McCain and Lindsey Graham on for the 27th time each, instead of dealing with what was the most important speech about climate change ever given given by a sitting president. And Think Progress, the uh, progressive website, published an infographic which pointed out that, as you say, Sunday's news shows ignored Obama's climate plan. Late-night comedy shows picked up the slack. The Daily Show gave three minutes and 29 seconds to the president. Late Show gave one minute, 33 seconds. The Tonight Show gave one minute and two seconds. Meet the Press, zero seconds. Fox News, zero seconds. ABC This Week, zero seconds. Face the Nation, zero seconds. State of the Union on CNN, zero seconds. Yeah, but I bet they kept us informed about the phony IRS scandal. They have stuff which they think pushes the buttons that makes people emotional and angry, and they just find climate change a snooze. They find guns a snooze. Look at what happened with Sandy Hook. Look at what happened with Hurricane Sandy and climate change. We are capable of turning away because we get bored with one thing and need the, the next. At the time of the, of the Sandy Hook shootings, you wrote about the learned helplessness uh, that seemed to permeate that situation. Talk about that a moment. We have had the unfortunate experience of being outraged, being Brazilians, trying to get something done, and watching as the dysfunctional system that we are forced to live under destroys momentum and creates stasis or adds power to the already powerful rather than enabling reform. We have, for example, on uh, Capitol Hill, a system which is built on the need to create ads, narratives, phony reality about members who are running for office. And they need to finance that because our television stations make a killing on that, especially in the swing states. And so the only way they can finance it is by doing quid pro quo deals with special interests. So when uh, the Newtown tragedy happened, my instinct was, yes, I know Obama's going to make a great speech and the right. polls are going to be 99%. But it's going to be business as usual. Our hearts will be broken because the system is simply unresponsive and incapable of reform. You watch that happen enough times and you decide 
why bother? You have to be someone who just fell off the turnip truck to think that popular outrage can make a difference. The truth is that we can make a difference. We can change the way campaigns are financed. We can change the electoral college. You name it. We can do things, but because we have been taught that we will be ineffective and fail, it seems like the gesture of a rube to be hopeful. What intrigued me was that the Brazilians first sparked over an increase in the bus fare in Sao Paulo, and then it just spread the bus fare. Yet when recently the Metropolitan Transit Authority here in New York raised the transit fare, it just there was any, wasn't even a ripple on the surface. Because the class that produces news has the kind of incomes that can absorb those kinds of changes. The news industry is now part of the privileged elite. They are not the scrappy adversaries that uh, one would hope they would be fighting for the little guy. They are the man. And if public transportation costs a little more, the studio is going to send a car for them anyway. The problem is that corporate self-interest plays itself out in the content of news. Never gonna learn. Never gonna change. Never gonna be the way you want me to be. I wasn't built that way. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. An August 11th discussion of NSA surveillance on Face the Nation featured three forthright defenders of the agency. Former NSA chief Michael Hayden, who launched the warrantless wiretapping program deemed unconstitutional by federal judges, was on the show, not to answer tough questions, but to hype the NSA's effectiveness and lawfulness. Hayden was followed by New York Republican Representative Peter King, who said the NSA had done an outstanding job and Maryland Democrat Representative Dutch Ruppersberger, who touted the surveillance program's checks and balances. It was Hayden's second appearance on the show since The Guardian published documents leaked by whistleblower Edward Snowden. Previously, Face the Nation had also featured interviews with agency defenders Michigan Republican Representative Mike Rogers and White House Chief of Staff Dennis McDonough. What little NSA criticism has been featured on Face the Nation came in earlier appearances by reporter Barton Gelman and Senator Mark Udall, but nothing like the lopsided discussion presented on the August 11th program. In a June 30th Hayden interview, Schieffer helpfully asked the former NSA chief, quote, Do you think the government ought to be doing more to help the American people understand what's happening here? Close quote. So the problem isn't the surveillance programs, but agency PR? Earlier on Face the Nation, Schieffer described NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden as, quote, a narcissistic young man who has decided he is smarter than the rest of us. I don't know what he is beyond that, but he is no hero, close quote. 
You put all this together and it seems clear that Schieffer is allowing his pro-NSA bias to deprive his viewers of a broader debate about NSA surveillance. As you know, there's a debate going on over journalism in America. The Pew Research Center recently wrote bleakly about the future of journalism. The other side of it, Marty, is that some people are saying these are the glory days of journalism because there's so much information out there online if you have access. And you yourself recently wrote, and I'm quoting, the best journalism in the world from plenty of sources is available online, often for no cents a day, and we can access it in video and audio as well and from anywhere at any time. So where do you come down? And as long as you are a critical thinker, as long as you could sort the stuff that's reliable from the crud, as long as you understand that people who propagate information have interests. And so you can understand that, you know, this incredibly popular website is also the mouthpiece for this party. To be able to do that requires exposure to enough quality journalism so that you learn to tell the difference between the stuff that's being hawked in the bazaar that uh, is intriguing and probably only partly accurate between that and stuff which where the facts are verified. We have had instance after instance in the last several months of stories in which it's the pressure to be first to say something before anyone else has completely overridden the pressure to check is it accurate and valid and this is happening to the prestige outlets they are not taking the time because they have this bizarre notion that being first in the world of journalism when microseconds count it's like being a a micro trader on wall street that you're going to make or lose zillions by having those bragging rights and in fact the next day they buy full page ads in the new york times saying we were first to get this they don't buy an ad when they say we were first and wrong come back to cable for a moment because as you know the cable the three major cable outlets MSNBC Fox News and CNN have been giving a lot of attention to the Trayvon Martin story yesterday huge day the George Zimmerman trial coming up a crucial day in the George Zimmerman trial the George Zimmerman trial is eating up a lot of time on cable television and the trial that's got American in tra- American trance we are watching with great interest the jury is not yet seated as soon as this trial begins in earnest we will take you there it's a good story by the way Would they be doing this if people weren't watching? No, uh, they are both creating and responding to demand. But what they're not doing is exercising journalism. What they're doing is they're part of the entertainment industry. They're providing content. Journalism, in principle, is set apart because it has a notion of what's important, not just interesting. And in a dream world, journalists would make important stuff interesting, that they would use the same kind of techniques they use in covering the Trayvon Martin uh, case to make stuff like climate change just as compelling.
You've been following the debate between Glenn Greenwald, who broke the Edward Snowden story, and NBC's David Gregory, who asked, well, let's listen to what David Gregory asked Glenn Greenwald on Meet the Press. Um, to the extent that you have aided and abetted Snowden, even in his current movements, why shouldn't you, Mr. Greenwald, be charged with a crime? I think it's pretty extraordinary that anybody who would call themselves a journalist would publicly muse about whether or not other journalists should be charged with felonies. The assumption in your question, David, is completely without evidence, the idea that I've aided and abetted him in any way. The scandal that arose in Washington before our stories began was about the fact that the Obama administration is trying to criminalize investigative journalism by going through the, the emails and phone records of AP reporters, accusing a Fox News journalist of the theory that you just embraced, being a co-conspirator with felony in felonies for working with sources. If you want to embrace that theory, it means that every investigative journalist in the United States who works with their sources, who receives classified information, is a criminal. And it's precisely those theories and precisely that climate that has become so menacing in the United States. It's why the New Yorker's Jane Mayer said investigative reporting has come to a standstill, her word, as a result of the theories that you just referenced. Well, the question of who's a journalist may be up to a debate with regard to what you're doing. And of course, anybody who's watching this understands I was asking a question. That question has been raised by lawmakers as well. I'm not embracing anything, uh, but obviously I take your point. The assumption of the question is that there's some dictionary somewhere that says what journalism is. The truth is that journalism, like a number of other things, is socially constructed. We enter into a contract through history and based on class and evidence of what journalism is or is not. Things get ruled in or ruled out all the time. And the reasons they're ruled in or out is not because some school of journalism, some professor says, well, here's the yardstick and it is or it isn't. The, the way in which things get ruled in or not is practice what actually happens. So if David Gregory can ask a question and justify it by say some in Congress are asking that question, that rules out nothing. Some in Congress are morons and those people will say anything. And as long as you have the ability to do the some say game and call yourself a journalist and be in a mainstream uh, marquee platform, then you are tugging at what the definition of journalism is. And I think it's entirely appropriate for Glenn Greenwald or anyone else to tug right back and say, no, what you have done changes the terms of the debate. Here's where I stand and let's fight it out. Let's not let the imprimatur of some corporate uh, trademark say that this defines what journalism is. So when Glenn Greenwald says, top officials are lying to our faces about government spying. Is that journalism or is it prosecution? Is he a journalist or is he an activist? I think there is a credible case that journalism is activism. That, <laughs> that if you as a journalist uh, cover climate change by saying, well, some say this and some say that, you're not being a journalist. You're being a tool of the people who want to intimidate journalism from covering evidence and the truth. So when Glenn Greenwald says that lying is going on, uh, I don't think you can rule that out because of the 
activist nature of journalism. It either is true or not true. Let's settle it on those merits, not on the question of does he have the credential to be able to do that. It does seem to me that the First Amendment guarantees us the right to draw a conclusion on the evidence from the evidence that we have gathered. Yeah, and unfortunately, the especially the right has learned to game the system and to say, no, no, journalism is not that. Journalism is we report, you decide, the phony slogan of Fox News. So giving people alleged evidence and letting them draw alleged conclusions is in the interests of people who want to throw sand in your face and work the ref so that they are softened up and afraid to say, here is the conclusion. So your point about the Trayvon Martin trial, about uh, Paula Dean, whom we haven't even discussed, uh, about what you call the race, crime and porn axis in tabloid news, cable news. Your point is that it distracts us from and drives out attention to the problems that will take us down if we don't tackle them? Watch the birdie over here, not, not the corruption over there. That's what circuses are about, is to distract us and make us happy while we're being distracted. The challenge is not only to give us the information that we should be paying attention to and to do it in a way which keeps our attention. The challenge is also what do we as citizens do with that? And I think there's an aspect of journalism which is afraid of taking that extra step and empowering citizens or covering the citizens who have empowered themselves to try to make a difference. But when we do that, Marty, we run into what you wrote about recently, informed citizen disorder, ICD. Now, for the benefit of my viewers who haven't read this, tell me what you mean by informed citizen disorder. Uh, ever since I was in junior high school, I was taught that to be a good citizen meant you needed to know what was going on in your country and in your world. You should read the paper. You should pay attention to the news. That's part of your responsibility of being an American. And the problem, especially in recent years, is the more informed I am, the more uh, despondent I am. Because day after day, there is news which drives me crazy. And I want to see the public rise up in outrage and say, no, you can't do that, banks. You can't do that, corporations. You can't do that, polluters. You have to stop and pay attention to the laws, or we're going to change the laws that every time that doesn't happen and I keep learning each day the same thing. Something bad happened and nothing was done about it. That's the news. The more that that's the case, the sadder one is when you consume all that news. So it, the, all the incentives are perverse. The way to be happy, to avoid this despondency, is to be oblivious to it all, to live in Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. So given all that we've talked about and all you're writing about, where do you come out? Are you an optimist or a pessimist about what's happening to us? I have children. I have to be an optimist. The globe has children. We have to be optimists. There is no choice. What is the alternative? If you are a pessimist, well, the most you can do, I suppose, is medicate yourself with uh, the latest blockbuster and uh, some sugar, salt, and fat that's being marketed to you. 
the only responsible thing that you can do is say that individuals can make a difference and I will try, we will try to, to make that. And I'm under no illusion that uh, I can ignite some national wave of protest but as more and more cities become more and more unhappy with what their corrupt government is doing, maybe a critical mass builds. Marty Kaplan, thank you again for joining me. Thank you. This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Coleman Lowndes. On Fox & Friends, Fox News Senior Judicial Analyst Andrew Napolitano criticized President Obama for seeking congressional authorization for a military strike on Syria, citing the executive power granted under the War Powers Act. Let's take a step back. It's a little mystifying, legally, why the President is asking Congress for authority to do something that it has already given him authority to do. While Napolitano is now criticizing Obama's effort to seek congressional authorization for a military strike, back in 2011, he had a very different position on the War Powers Act. Here's Napolitano on Fox News' Glenn Beck reacting to news that President Obama was considering military action against Libya without seeking congressional authorization. You know, as well as I, that under a terrible law called the War Powers Act, the President can commit us to a land war or an air war, whatever he wants to do, for 90 days and then renew it for another 90 days and there's nothing the Congress can do about it. Is he planning to do something like that, whether the American people, whether the Congress wants it or not, even though the Constitution says only Congress shall declare war? Whenever the U.S. is contemplating war, which happens with disturbing frequency these days, you can always count on corporate media to tout the lethal efficiency of U.S. weaponry. This go-round with an attack on Syria, possibly in the offing, is no different. CNN anchor Brooke Baldwin on August 30th couldn't say enough about the cruise missiles that might be used against Syria in the event of a U.S. attack. Syria is now staring down the barrel of five U.S. warships, she said. The U.S., quote, is believed to have submarines out there as well. All those vessels can carry cruise missiles able to strike targets more than a thousand miles away with pinpoint accuracy, close quote. Three days later, also on CNN, correspondent Tom Foreman told viewers, quote, Cruise missiles are extraordinary weapons. They're very reliable. They have pinpoint accuracy. They can carry 1,000-pound warheads, and we might be talking about 100, 200, 300 of them being launched, close quote. Well, this kind of thing hasn't been seen on CNN since... Well, the last time the U.S. was precisely bombing a country. That time it was Libya, and a CNN military reporter was explaining that, quote, American Tomahawk missiles can be reprogrammed in flight. If there was a risk of civilian casualties, operators could change the target after launch. But the Navy did not use that ability, confident it was aiming at military targets, close quote. Well, these kinds of reports help to maintain friendly relations between the media outlet and the Pentagon by making war more palatable, no matter that civilians continue to die at alarming rates under the barrage of pinpoint U.S. strikes.
One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen, so if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show, after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restrictions. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. I'm going to break down the news for you a little bit here in this segment, uh, and it's on the issue of Syria. Now, in Syria, we've apparently decided that we're going to war. Now, I said that was the case because over the weekend, we had every sort of pundit on Fox News, CNN, etc., congressmen, senators, all of the media and political establishment going on at once and saying, oh, it's very important that we attack Syria. It's very important. We must attack Syria. Now, they're undaunted by the fact that only 9% of Americans uh, want to actually intervene in Syria. The American people is, of course, an afterthought for these folks. Now, yesterday, Jared put together a great compilation, 2 minutes and 40 seconds, back-to-back of all those same folks. And you can check it out on YouTube saying, we got to go, we got to go, we got to go. Now, what's interesting about how they do propaganda is that CNN themselves, don't, they don't come out and read a statement. The official position of CNN is that we agree with the government and we should attack Syria. Right? Of course they don't do that. They would never do that. And they claim that that would be totally counter to what they are as an organization. But in reality, what they do is they put out government officials, they put out pundits, CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, who almost all say the same thing. Now, there might be dissent later, depending on whatever political purposes the two parties have, and later they could be, oh, well, you know, golly gee, we're in the middle of the war already. But, you know, I had reservations in case things go wrong. But before the strikes begin, this is all you see on television. There is a reason why President Obama has made clear to the Assad regime that this international norm cannot be violated without consequences. Well, especially after what Secretary Kerry said, we have to act. Uh, exactly what action he's going to take, but it certainly seemed like, seems like he's getting ready to take one. Do you I, think he should? I think he should, and I think he will. But once that red line has been crossed, once chemical weapons have been used, I believe the president has to take action. All peoples and all nations who believe in the cause of our common humanity. We don't act. Uh, exactly what action? To act. Take action. The action. To take action. Must stand up to assure that there is accountability for the use of chemical weapons so that it never happens again. Uh, allies in the region, adversaries in the region are going to look. So we have to take action. I mean, Iran is going to be looking at how we respond as they go forward with their nuclear weapon program. There's evidence now that, the, that they used chemical weapons at a very large scale. And I, I think that action is imminent. There's more of a concern here that we lose our credibility if we don't act. But if the order comes, you're ready to go like that. We are ready to go like that. So when you turn on television, there's no real debate. Official-looking people come on, Democrats and Republicans, and commentators and pundits all across the spectrum, and every single one of them says with the same voice, we must act. 
no matter what you think or the American people think, we must go to military options. And that's how propaganda works. And so by the end, all you hear is the same thing. War, war, war. War is the answer. We forgot the question. This is Will from Tallahassee, Florida. I'm calling because I've heard a lot about the fast food strikes and, and basically the $15 an hour minimum wage. And something that I haven't noticed is any talk of the upward pressure it could possibly put on wages. I'm not an economist, but I am a low-wage worker. I'm in school in Florida, and I work at a golf course part-time. And I work with a lot of people that are making, you know, 8 9 $10 an hour. And something I haven't heard said by anyone was that if you could get service employees like McDonald's workers, if you basically got them $15 an hour, you know, it's going to create upward pressure on everyone's wages, especially us low, low wage workers. Um, also, I mean, what people don't realize is that most college students, most people with college degrees fresh out are coming out and getting jobs where they're making, you know, 15, 16, even 12, maybe up to $20 an hour, um, just by, just by making it where you could go to McDonald's and get a job making $15 an hour, it's gonna cause upward pressure, I think, on everyone's wages. And also, it's gonna be a huge stimulus to the economy. I mean, the whole, even what Obama was saying about the middle out stuff, it just sounds like BS to me because I don't think money ever flows down really. I think that a $15 an hour wage would definitely stimulate the economy. I'd love to hear why I was wrong if I'm if I am wrong, but uh thanks a lot. Keep up the good work, man. I'd like to remain anonymous for this voicemail. Um I'm a drug addict and alcoholic. I'm in recovery. I've been sober almost four and a half years. And the episodes and the discussion about the war on drugs always is interesting to me and I really appreciated that interview that was on there with the with the reporter social worker who went to Afghanistan you know was talking about the, the effects that this has on people and I am a white male I did not get arrested ever once or incarcerated for my drug use for the crimes I, I committed while I was using drugs we always hear in America that Americans are about redemption Right. I mean, we have the, the politicians who come back from sex scandals or, or embezzlement things or this, that, and the other, and they're generally in the, in the private eye where we, we glamorize celebrities. People get, you know, redeemed in the eyes of Americans. The shitty thing that happens to drug addicts and alcoholics, especially when they have a criminal record, is then they have that felony on their record. I have a, a friend, and this isn't a euphemism, I really used to have a friend. He happened to get caught selling some probably in high school. So when he filled out his FAFSA to get into college, he had to check that he had been convicted of selling drugs. So he was not allowed to get any federal aid to go to college, and that extremely, you know, hampered him. And every time he has to apply for a job, he has to check that little box. And checking that little box, it just kind of perpetuates the 
poorer class of people because they can't get any good jobs because nobody wants to hire a felon. No one wants to hire a drug addict or, or an alcoholic. And, you know, the fact of the matter is, especially with, with young people, like that, that guy was talking on Jimmy Dore was, was talking about that guy who, Patrick Kennedy or whatever, he was an addict. And now he's saying, oh, we can't, can't have the kids get a hold of these things. You know, the fact of the matter is, if we had a better education program, you know, when I went to school, there was this thing called DARE. And what DARE did was it came into fifth grade and it taught us what drugs were. Uh, and I, that's where I learned about drugs was through the DARE program. But if we actually focused on education about drugs, Obviously, I'm in support of legalizing the drugs and taxing them and regulating them. But if we if we focused on education and then turned around and focused on rehabilitation, especially of, of minor offenders, especially of people who get tied up and sucked into a culture or into a drug that, that they were naive about, or even if they weren't naive about, that it can really take over and control your life. And unfortunately, my drug alcoholism and me being an addict, I've had to keep relatively low on the radar for most of the people and you know my job, things that I interact with in my life, because it's just not socially accepted. My story of redemption, of coming back from the grips of methamphetamine and alcoholism, that that for some reason is taboo, and people should still look at me suspiciously. You know, but politicians cheat on their wife and embezzle money, and if they just publicly say they're sorry, we'll still trust them with women and trust them with bank accounts. So it's just, the episode kind of stirred up a lot of emotions in me about this, and I just wanted to offer a perspective that looks more at the humanity of this problem, what it does to people long term. I mean, even if we get rid of mandatory minimum sentences, if you're a drug dealer, good luck getting a job anywhere that's going to run a background check for the rest of your life. It's just, it's just rough out there for, for people, and we really should be focusing our attention on trying to help them. But thankfully, that's kind of the message that your episode projected, so I appreciate that. Take care. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or to relate your firsthand experience from a political event you've attended to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So today, I'm just going to tangentially touch on the anonymous call that we just got, and but then take the conversation in a different direction. So so my takeaway from that call, you know, referring to drug addiction and, and so forth, is that people... Are, are and in society as a whole are really better off when we treat uh, drug addiction problems as you know an addiction to be treated rather than a criminal act to be punished and and, and the caller referred to a segment that was played on a previous episode where there was a social worker who worked not only in the US but also in Afghanistan and witnessed uh, you know drug addicts in both countries and, and talked to them and heard their stories and learned that the reasons that they were doing drugs were essentially all the same across the board. And, you know, it's desperation in all of its forms, you know, economic hard times or, or depression or, you know, whatever, uh, people having a hard time turned to drugs. So now I'm, I'm going to take it in a different direction, but with this sort of as a foundation. So months ago, I went to Netroots Nation and attended a gun control panel, you know, so I listened to the panel of experts, they talked for an hour or whatever, and then opened up for a Q&A session with the audience. 
And, you know, so the experts talked all about gun control laws and how to restrict gun purchases and use and so on. And, and then a person got up from the crowd during Q and A and asked the question that I agreed with more than anything that had been said in the entire hour, which was, why don't we talk about gun violence as sort of a, a jumping off point to talk about all of the different social ills that America suffers from and to recognize that, you know, proper funding for after school education or drug addiction or mental health services or, you know, implementing policies that would uh, lower the wealth divide in this country, that all of these things would, you know, by improving the, you know, fabric of society would then hence uh, decrease the amount of gun violence that we have. Basically, the argument being that people who commit acts of gun violence are not so terribly different from those who suffer from, uh, you know, drug addiction. Sometimes they're the same literal people, but it comes from a sense of desperation. You know, people who aren't desperate, they're, they're not in a bad economic situation or they're not horribly depressed or whatever, are much less likely to go out and kill people with a gun, obviously. And so the argument is we should take a more holistic approach to the issue of gun violence and, and not think of it as this single siloed issue. And so, you know, the debate that we have right now is bet essentially between people who want to restrict the sale and use of guns and pe those people who don't want to restrict the sale and use of guns. And I find the argument uh, on, on both sides to be really frustrating to listen to. You know, with the liberals, the, the, the pro-gun control people, I get really frustrated because they talk about the issue in such a siloed way and they don't relate it to all of the other you know, problems in society and how those other problems impact, uh, you know, gun usage. Uh, you know, I mean, they'll bring up the topic that the way that people get killed with guns more than any other is suicide. Well, that seems like a, a great jumping off point to talk about mental health issues and depression and what causes depression and, you know, w what are people so angry about? If I had to guess, I'd throw out one thing that I get angry about a lot is injustice. So if we can create sort of a more uh, egalitarian and just society, maybe we can decrease the levels of you know depression and anger going on, just, just as a for instance. Now, on the other side, the conservatives, they say ridiculous things like gun control laws won't do anything, like literally they won't do anything. But that's asinine because you can look at other countries that have implemented gun control laws and you can see that they do do something. They don't fix the problem in its entirety. You know, maybe it's like treating a bacterial infection with Advil. Like it, it decreases the symptoms a little bit, but it doesn't go in and actually solve the root of the problem. You know, yeah, okay, breaks your fever and eases your headache, but what you really need is antibiotics. But then there's the other thing that conservatives say that I think kind of starts to bring all these points together. And, and I think they're saying something smarter than they even realize they are. Say it with me. Guns don't kill people. People kill people. Now, I think what they mean when they say that is, hey, people kill people and people are fucked up, so there's nothing we can do about it. And what I hear when they say that is, guns don't kill people. People kill people. Therefore, we need a major overhaul in our social safety net so as to keep as many people as possible as far away as possible from those desperate straits that so many people find themselves in that leads to gun violence. So since we're all in favor of as few innocent people being killed unnecessarily by guns as possible, well then, let's decrease the amount of desperation in the country that leads to things like drug addiction and gun violence.
Now, of course, this doesn't mean that I'm no longer in favor of gun control laws or anything like that. I mean, I'm happy to take an Advil when I have a headache, but you know, when I know the issue is deeper, I would much rather address the infection much closer to its core and, and actually deal with it from as many different angles as we can, getting as close to the root of the problem as we can. So if you're going to be involved in gun control advocacy, try to connect these dots for people because I think they're all more connected than we realize. You know, So maybe you find someone and you're not going to convince them that gun control laws are the way to go, but maybe you can convince them that universal health care helps keep people out of bankruptcy when they get sick and they can't pay their medical bills. And because they don't go into bankruptcy, they don't become you know desperate and depressed because they don't have money to feed themselves or pay their mortgage or whatever, and, and they don't have all that additional stress stress in combination with their illness, dealing with all the financial issues. So all of this stress is, is relieved. They don't have to you know, worry about their income necessarily because of, of the health care costs. And that helps avoid those desperate straits. So they never even have to contemplate something like gun violence to try to you know, rob a liquor store to get money to pay for food. You know? they, they, they never even get within a country mile of, of those sorts of thoughts because they've avoided the circumstance altogether because society has been set up in a way to help them before they went down that path to begin with. So those are my thoughts. I'd love to hear what you think. The number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks especially to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That's absolutely how the program survives. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, in DC. My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame how we get so trained.